We help you discover your many layers. You peel your car, you wake up, with fresh eyes. Question life, question humanity, question society, but most of all, question yourself. I'm Nikki Wilkinson. I'm the Exec Director of Viatry Philanthropy, uh, which is very briefly, Viatry is a, a private trust and our mission is to support work in South and Southeast Asia that facilitates more just, equitable and inclusive futures. And I can talk more about that in a bit. So how did Firetree um, start and how did they get involved with specifically Southeast Asia? Yeah, great question. So in terms of uh, the, in the endowment that we have, um, it's all thanks to uh, one individual, a, a US citizen called Dick Hockland. Dick was so born and raised in the US and uh, he was a chemist and he founded a company called uh, molecular probes, which it produces um, fluorescent dyes, which are used in uh, biomedical research labs around the world and still are to this day, actually. And so he founded the company, he founded the company with his wife. Um, and then in 20, uh, 2003, when he sold the company, he set aside uh, quite a significant some of the sale of the company into, I, I guess you would say the sort of precursor to Firetree. So Firetree philanthropy as it exists now is quite different from how it started, but uh, into the, what was then the, the Richard P. Hockland Foundation. In terms of the link to Southeast Asia, Dick had spent a lot of time, he spent a lot of time in Thailand from 2004 onwards, and also had a particular interest and sort of talent for education. He originally got involved and helped set, set up an initiative called Starfish Education, which is kind of a sister to Firetree, which focuses on education in Thailand um, and works really now at every level of the Thai education system on preparing children and young people for, 21st, for the 21st century in Thailand and looking at kind of different types of curriculum pedagogy and approach. Um, and then I suppose Firetree Philanthropy as it is today wouldn't really exist without a fairly sort of fateful meeting between Dick and the managing director of, of Firetree, Francesca Caruso, who at that time was a co-founder of a very successful nonprofit in uh, Sianukville in, in Cambodia called Omoktapang. Um, and Dick and Francesca met that way. And then became and became friends. And latterly, when Francesco left Mutapang, um, he Dick asked him to come and help run the foundation and and help support the the giving of the foundation. Uh, Dick sadly passed away in, in 2016. And when it was clear from his medical diagnosis that he, you know, it was a terminal diagnosis, he and Francesco worked a lot on what the legacy of, of the, what the next stage rather of the foundation as a trust as it is now would be. And really Firetree Philanthropy is the result of that. Uh, the name Firetree, uh, it was, I believe, uh, or I understand from Francesco, very clear that he didn't want, it was no longer relevant to him for it to be the Richard P. Hockland Foundation that he, you know, he really felt that his name was, was not the, not the story. And so, 
the name fire tree came from um, a conversation that Dick and, and Fran Francesco were having uh, and recognizing that all the fire trees were out in Cambodia and it's a particular time of year for a sort of particularly fun time of year for school kids in Cambodia and so that's what uh, where the name came from. Uh, I joined in 2018, uh, midway through 2018, uh, and then we've been through a couple of it, this sort of uh, iterations through that. In we had, we ran a pilot on uh, the impact investing side, which I wasn't involved with, but it was part of FireTree, which we then wound up. Um, and then FireTree Philanthropy, as it is now, uh, we really we is now based in in Singapore. The trust is based in Singapore. We were based in the US. Um, so as as it exists now, we're sort of just under a couple of years old, really. So there's been sort of a few iterations, I guess. That was a long answer. <laughs> Sorry. What I'm curious about is your journey. So what were you doing before? How did you end up working for Firetree Philanthropy? Yeah, so my background, I've always worked in the nonprofit sector. I've always worked for charities, nonprofits, uh, predominantly in the kind of youth empowerment and sexual reproductive rights space. Generally, uh, I've worked for sort of small NGOs um, that are very much locally led uh, rather than sort of big INGOs. Uh, most of that work has been across uh, sub-Saharan, uh, specific countries in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and then uh, also in South and Southeast Asia as well. I, I moved to Singapore, I've been here about eight years now. Um, so predominantly, always in, this, in the non-profit space, uh, predominantly in the youth um, and sexual reproductive health rights space. I did, um, I did do a sort of a, a, a slight pivot, I suppose, into an exploration more of the UK social innovation space, which was really interesting. And that was just shortly before coming out to Singapore. What I'm really curious about is because I, I don't really get the opportunity to have conversations with people who are working in foundations. And I think for a lot of us practitioners working on the ground bottom up, it's just when you're applying for funding, you just think, what what is it that funders think about when they fund certain projects? Like what goes on in their head? What are the some yeah, of the discussions yeah. that's I, going I really on? know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I really know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. I suppose to answer that, it's maybe if I sort of split that answer into two in terms of what FireTree specifically looks at, uh, and I suppose what the sector more generally looks at. And I, I think this is my first time being sort of on the on the funder side uh, I, I did do a little bit of this on the social innovation side with some funding in the UK but yeah having been predominantly in fact largely on the the other side if you like I can really relate to that feeling and it does you know I think in so many countries and contexts it does it can feel like there's a real disconnect between funders and fundies even that language is kind of clunky uh, so for us one of the things when we're looking on the on the funding side we really try to prioritize and work on a 
trust-centered type practice. And I, and I want to be really upfront about this and say that, you know, I, I really want to be open and honest that I, it's a work in progress. I, I certainly don't claim that we've, we've got everything figured out. We haven't, we're a very small team. We're constantly learning. But what we're really trying to do is draw on our own experience, running nonprofits, applying for funding and all of the challenges that, you know, that, that that can hold both some examples of really great funders that we've worked with and, and some perhaps some more challenging examples, but also to recognize the role that we can play as a private trust. So one of the things that I've learned through through Vitry is I, I think it's when you look at philanthropic funding, it, it, you sort of think, oh, well, I did anyway. It's like our oh, funders are kind of all the same, right? They, they you know. And actually, uh, one helpful insight, I think, is that different type where the money comes from really often affects how the funder behaves and how the funder can behave. And also, other, of course, other factors like who the board is and that sort of thing. Um, so, for example, you know, a government funder, as we well know, you know, it, 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 it may well behave quite differently because it's taxpayers money ultimately from a a private trust like us and I think we're very we're coming from a position of, of two things really one is trying to center sort of trust and equity more in our practice and, and how we fund and the second is being very aware of the role that we can play as a private trust recognizing that that sort of structurally if you like allows us to do things that perhaps other funders just can't and that's particularly in relation to funding work that is more unproven more experimental um work that it often is more diffuse in terms of supporting networks or kind of social infrastructure if you like rather than a specific kind of proven delivery model we do fund that too uh, but we you know we I, I think we have a very uh, are very aware that we have a real responsibility to it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to play in the same space for example as a UN funder or the European Union or something, A, because they have way more assets. Um, but also, you know, they're generally, those types of funders are generally looking to fund something that's really proven, it's a huge scale, you know, whereas for us, which is which is fine and needed, right? Uh, but for therefore, where we can add more value, we feel, and, and based on our conversations, is in supporting work that is a little bit more experimental and particularly that doesn't have attribution issues like for us our, our name is irrelevant our brand is irrelevant we're not the story right the story is the work and the impact and the people that we support in terms of sort of a, a more trust-centered practice uh, which is very much an, a learning journey for us that really draws on our own experience it draws on the experience of our partners it also draws on a lot of emerging research out there so for example some great work um, from a group called Low, uh, authors called Low and Plimmer, where they looked at how funders that support kind of more systems shifting work, examples of best sort of if you like good practice on that best practice, and that you know those funders typically fund in a way that is human, as in you know we are all human, <laughs> you know they fund in a way that supports learning, um, and they look kind of more systemically so for us what we try to do in terms of centering trust in our practice is really and that's really the reason for doing that is really to try to shift 
some of the power dynamics that are inherent in in a in a, in a funding relationship um they are they can be quite unhealthy oh, uh, default model of funding is unrestricted funding so salaries rent printing all the stuff that is required to do important work whether in whatever field um we really try to minimize reporting requirements in terms of you know a lot of funders require sort of quarterly written reports or whatever for us we we do we do have to have financial reports of course um and that's a, a legal requirement too um but you know we're much more interested in what organizations are learning and how the team is doing and what insights are coming out of that uh, so we tend to do much more uh well before covid it was face-to-face -face catch ups and, and visits um to teams and, and communities now of course it's much more on zoom on kind of how things are going we're very comfortable with you know plans change they change all the time we know that especially especially right now in covid you know communities are complex the world is in constant flux so for us I think it's really important to really recognize that and a provide just be there as a as a partner and a, and a, and a friend um for, for partners and a thought partner um but also to allow that flexibility and allow that emergence rather than sort of saying right okay this is you know you said you were going to do x y and z exactly this over the next three years and 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 any deviation from that being seen as a as a negative if you know what i mean it's never so, easy raising money right i mean we've you and i have both raised um had to write lots of grants and i don't think it's ever easy to raise money but we do know and there's loads of data out there that you know international organizations yeah it, it's easier for them to raise money um and to attract kind of big significant money whereas for more locally led organizations particularly if they don't have a kind of high profile you know, well-connected board, for example, or a well-connected founder, it is, it's much harder to, to do that. Often there's barriers, equity barriers in terms of um, language and, and English and, and that sort of thing. So that's one of the reasons that we don't, we don't ask for written proposals, for example, um, because that we know that takes an enormous amount of time. I've probably spent weeks of my life <laughs> over cumulatively and writing grant applications um, so for us because we're a really small team we don't want nonprofits to spend lots and lots of time writing proposals but then what's going to happen is we're just going to have a lot of questions anyway we would rather meet we'd rather do as much due diligence on the on the partner or on the potential partner before before we start conversations and to see if they might be a fit with um with our work and then much rather have direct conversations and and see the working communities and um and so what, what i always say to potential partners is look we don't ask for your time writing proposals but we do ask for your time um meeting your team and understanding um the, your model and and what and where you're looking to go and what challenges you're facing and and that sort of thing uh so for us we would look for we look i mean it's all on our website but very broadly we look very closely, and this is not in order of priority, I should say, but we look very closely at the team, uh, or if it's if it's a one person thing, obviously, you know, um, the, the people, um, but we look very closely at the team, very specifically in terms of, particularly in terms of kind of what their vision is, where, where they want to take their initiative or their, uh, their work, um, how connected they are 
to the context or the or the issue that that issues um, that they're looking to tackle. So, particularly, you know, if they've got lived experience of a particular issue or they're from a particular context, you know, and kind of intimately have that lived experience, um, we we pay very close attention to that. We have learned to pay more attention to who's on the board, um, not in terms of necessarily like, you know, how connected the board is, but what experience the board has, what how the board sees its role, um, whether the board sees its role as uh, supporting the executive to, who really lead the strategy and, and the board's role is to kind of support on that, or whether the board sees their role as like we set the strategy and then the exec implement it executes on that you know whether there's a sort of a power dynamic there so we look very closely at people um we look very very closely at um the how embedded an organization or a network is in a context or a community um and by that i mean both you know what experience do they have how connected are they to a community but also um how how connected are they to other organizations and other players because no you know no none of us are operating in a vacuum right so we pay very close attention to how much an organization or a network play it works with others and whether that's other organizations or community members um if it's relevant government you know whatever's relevant but how connected are they into the fabric of the kind of social infrastructure if you like um and then finally we look at their systems and and obviously that's things like you know if it's an if it's an ngo obviously we do checks on you know financial systems and that sort of thing but very we're particularly interested in the learning systems uh, or how an organization learns and by that i really want to differentiate that from like I don't mean just sort of monitoring and evaluation like oh we did you know we did this and we reported this because the funder asked us to we're interested in what do you what do you want to learn like not not for us we don't we don't ever impose a a report a, a monitoring framework we don't say right you need to tell us how many people you've reached on whatever that's not relevant for us what we want to understand what we want to understand is how do you as an organization what is it that you want to learn and how do you translate what those insights that you're gaining how does that feed back into the work that you're doing how do you pivot your model how do you get input from uh, the community that you're working with um so because you know com communities aren't static right so this none of us any social or social environmental work it's not us it's it's in flux right and, and humans are complex and communities are complex and things are changing all the time especially right now so we we pay a lot of attention to organizations that actively want to, to learn and seek that feedback and kind of iterate their model and adapt and then part of our um responsibility is, is to allow is to allow that right is to say right okay we you know great you know here's this funding is is flexible or unrestricted um go with it and so the only kind of the sort of if you like the narrative quote unquote reporting that we get is what organizations are collecting for themselves and what they're learning. Um, and that's usually we get that through conversations. We get through lots of like, you know, WhatsApp conversations, we get it through Zoom conversations, we get it through the, you know, some of the data and the insights they collect. Um, and then I think the uh, final thing is just a level of kind of 
that we look at is level of openness to talk about challenges and transparency uh, and that you know that takes that takes time right i mean it, i don't think you can expect it's not fair to expect an organization to be totally upfront with you about all of the skeletons in the closet or the things that haven't gone well um and so the way that we try to kind of establish that protocol is to be very open about what we're learning and mistakes that i've made and that we've made you know to try and kind of gradually over time build up that that trust that um you know we know that all organizations all networks every has have challenges you know it's not it's not a it's not a flaw um, in terms of what other fund you know funders more generally look at i think there's some definitely some parallels there i mean all funders are going to look at your you know strength of your systems they're going to understand, want to understand your model they're going to want to understand your team um possibly other funders might be um pay a bit more attention to things like who you're funded by who else you're funded by you know your track record that sort of thing and of course we look at that but because it quite a bit of the work we fund is untested or, or new that you know yeah, <laughs> there isn't any so <laughs> that's fine um yeah uh that uh, how yeah I, I think there's some, some definitely some parallels there but possibly there are some other aspects that other funders will pay more attention to perhaps than we do like who else are you funded by um yeah that was a really long answer i'm sorry <laughs> To be honest, I I am quite amazed. <laughs> oh no, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> I feel like um, because I don't know if it's because your team has this sort of background in NGO, yourself included, and understanding how what it's like doing the work on the ground and oh, how difficult these so proposals hard. are. It's yeah. so hard. I mean, proposal and, writing. I've done it so much as you have, Theo, and it, it like with the best will in the world, it's just exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's just um, at the end of it when you when you've done the work and you have to do the reporting it kind of feels like you are you are selling the proposal and the reporting more than you are actually doing the work on the ground sometimes it really feels that right. way and I, I I really think that is a a, a visceral challenge and there's you know not, I haven't found so much data here actually but as in in Southeast Asia but yeah I mean certainly there's an increasing amount of data from the US and the UK on like just the amount of time and I know from my own experience the amount of time particularly it sort of uh, founders particularly and and kind of senior leaders spend on reporting and writing and, and kind of that hamster wheel of kind of win grants deliver the grants win new grants you know um and so look, yeah, so that's part of the reason that we don't accept proposals because, because we are a really small team. Um, I don't, we don't want organizations spending hours and hours and hours. Um, and also, you know, a lot of data is that yeah, in an open call, lots of organizations will apply and then very, you know, there's a small number that get funded, right? And we don't want to kind of add to that time zone, to yeah. that time wasted. But, you know, look, there's also, there's, there's also tensions within our model, right? So we we source proactively and and through our networks and often through our own existing partners of, who, of whom we fund um precisely for exactly that reason to try to you know have as productive a conversation as possible and not waste people's time that you know the tension there of course is do we need to be we need to pay very close attention to who our networks are because there's a 
like anything there's a risk there that you end up with an echo chamber right and if you if you're not careful as a as a, as a funder that you end up with yeah you, there's kind of huge equity issues there i think potentially on who your networks are and you know whether that how porous and accessible those networks are and that's something that honestly i, I think about a lot like what's the it, you know if we're saying that for us at least we don't think the open call option is the best use of either principally non-profits time but also ours um then and we try to be very relational as a funder then okay cool great um but how do you offer how do you try and manage the how do you make those networks as as kind of equitable and diverse as possible you know and there's a huge there's lots of things to think about there in terms of you know language ethnicity gender ability etc uh, and that's something that we've we tried to pay close attention to again it's a work in progress i, I don't want to say that we've completely cracked that one you know, as much as it's a work in progress, I have to say that this is pretty revolutionary in its own right, because what you're saying is that, you know, <laughs> because, you know, think about this, because you are shifting the power, you know, instead of like the funders looking at NGOs, nonprofits, civic organizations, as you are serving my needs to do these impact evaluation right. reports, you are shifting it around <laughs> saying like, we are going to try and support you in the work that you're doing, because this is what we want to do. And it's from a place of humility. And also, yeah. like you mentioned, you know, the sort of connectivity that the each organization has. And this is, you know, a lot of like sort of systems change theories and principles where, you know, it, it's also based on your sort of social capital and how connected you are. Right. And the stronger right. this supportive ecosystem and social ecosystem, the the better and faster it will it will be to, to create that kind of change that would be systemic. And yep. you are also addressing this in your own ways um, through these strategies, which I feel, I don't know, right. it, maybe... <laughs> A question would also be that are there other foundations that are doing it this way because it seems quite unique <laughs> and rare well um that's, uh, thanks i um yeah i mean i i think one thing that's interesting is my 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 hope is that one trend that might come out of covid is and certainly i have heard more conversations with institutional philanthropic funders like us um sort of thinking about okay do we need to do things differently and, and i think a gen the genesis of that has come from particularly last year you know and and sadly carry on to this year you know a lot of organizations things changed overnight right the world changed overnight um and for a lot of nonprofits, you know, suddenly for, on a concrete example, things like unrestricted funding, you know, suddenly nonprofits that had a lot of inflexible kind of project-based funding, you know, they couldn't do the, they couldn't do what they said they were going to do because they couldn't meet, you know, and and also often, you know, what was originally planned it just wasn't relevant anymore, right? I mean, if you're in a red zone lockdown, in, you know, in a informal community. Um, uh, you know, food and access to healthcare and safety become radically, very quickly become key priorities, right? So any kind of longer term plans you had, maybe it wasn't that the, the plan was bad, it's just the context has changed. And so the impact of that was a lot of nonprofits saying, you know, ah, 
gosh, I've got all these, I've got, I've got these grants, but I can't deliver on what I've said, you know, um, because the context has changed. And so lots of discussions then with funders about, look, can I, can I pivot? You know, this is what we're going to do to respond to that. Can we change this? Um, and I think of, you know, a varying degree of flexibility being seen, you know, some you know I do feel like for some funders uh, that this that crisis has been a real wake up call to ah uh, okay maybe we need to look at doing things a little bit differently even down to, even if it's just down kind of operationally like funding more flexibly or you know prior or, or funding greater amounts of core costs you know like salaries and that sort of thing and so certainly I have seen um quite a few funders pivot over COVID, you know, and say, yeah, okay, we're going to become, we're happy to become more flexible. We're not, you know, normally we're quite project-based under, um, but yes, in the context, we're going to become flexible. My, my, my personal hope is that that isn't a pandemic only trend, you know, that that then if, if, if funders have explored that, that that becomes a new, new MO, a new, a new way of doing things. Yeah. Um, Actually, on, on that point, like on a side note, when you mentioned about, you know, funding things like printing, I think people don't realize how how significant that is. Like for a lot of people, they just think, okay, that's insignificant, all these office costs, but they really add up. <laughs> and it's the thing that, yeah. that has to be done, like that has to be paid for your bills, your rent and all that. Absolutely. And not, not all paid. funding, yeah, and not all funding pays for these things because they just, yeah. I don't know, think that things come for free, resources come free. <laughs> And also that, you know, more deeply, I think there's also an, an equity point there that ironically, you know, if we're as funders, if we're saying, you know, we really want to prioritize people with lived experience or as, you know, direct um, uh, experience of a particular set of issues or a community, you know, oftentimes those people are precisely the people who, who can't possibly afford to work for free, you know, um, and so therefore, you, you know, you have an equity point that even if you have an organization that is able to not all of course some have very great volunteer models but you know if you have an organization where a lot of people can work unpaid it's usually because they have the you know the family resources or, or the personal resources to do that you know um so for us in particular where we say that we really prioritize kind of being connected to a community as much as possible and trying to fund at the local level as much as possible it, it would be completely counter if we then said okay but we can't fund you know we don't fund salaries and stuff because we couldn't possibly square that circle basically we couldn't find you know really impactful grassroots locally led organizations that then are all run completely by volunteers or, or and or you know don't have core costs like rent and salary and printing and that sort of thing so I do hope that that is changing. Uh, my experience of that is the conversation is shifting around, you know, understanding that those things are needed. But clearly, I mean, clearly there's a long way to go still, yeah. I wonder if you have any examples of um, organizations that Fartree Philanthropy is um, funding and supporting that's doing a lot of this sort of work on the ground and because they are so like uh, connected with their communities that they manage to stay resilient despite the COVID mm. situation. I wonder mm. if you have some examples on that and also like what were some of the key points that really helped them through this this period of time? Yeah. Um so yes, I mean all of our all of our partners are on our website. And I I, I should say as well, we, you know, we're, we're not a big player. It's I mean, some funders have, you know, 80, 80 organizations they fund. And actually that is another tension in our model that if we are very relational and we're a small team, you can't, I don't think you can have 60 
partners, right? <laughs> because then you do end up by definition, because of time, you do end up being a bit more transactional. Whereas we, you know, do invest quite heavily in the, in the human relationships. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think perhaps if I can just draw some generic findings that across all of our partners. So, you know, this includes, you know, fantastic organizations like Mukhtapang in Cambodia, um, Resolve in Hong Kong, all, all of our all of our partners, um, our, our Pinoy partners, um, and, uh, and Teach in the Philippines and others. I, I think what things that help them to be resilient were in at the moment that COVID really started to hit was a really um, strong focus on planning, um, which sounds like a really like management consultancy, oh, a strong focus on planning in the time of a pandemic. Um, but you know, it was really noticeable, the organizers, you know, the, the partners who were able to say, okay, right, let's look practically at what are the needs in the communities. A lot of them did um, very rapid kind of snapshots um, and surveys and or in, insight collection on what's happening in our communities now. Like even though we're really embedded in our communities and, and we, you know, we have many years of experience working in them, things have changed. So what's happening now? What are the issues now? And so I think there was one was starting from a place of humility of what we thought we knew may not be the case now maybe it is but let's test our assumptions i guess is the first point so test our assumptions and, and really look at what's happening now in our context and how covid is is impacting on that um that's the first thing the second thing is they kept doing that process right so they didn't just say say you know for example if you're talking about in the, in the philippines context in, in sort of end of february march 2020 when covid really started to hit um, it wasn't that just they did it once, you know, those organizations and then said, right, that's the data that we have for the for the next year. You know, they, they kept as much as possible kind of doing rapid iterative learning on, OK, what are we learning? OK, that's, so that was the first thing, kind of um, testing assumptions. The second thing was uh, an operational planning point. So candidly, things like how much cash do we have? You know, what is our cash runway? How many fund, you know, let's have conversations now with all of our funders about what we see the impact of this being, you know, um, what do we need to do to keep our people safe, you know, as, so not just our community, but also our staff, right? How do we, how do we look after our um, team as much as possible? So the second one was operational planning. Uh, the third was a huge amounts of iterative um, program adaptation, you know, so how do we adapt to this what what can we what can we do you know and how how do we um adapt to this changing context and crucially who else do we need to work with because none of them in any of their communities could do it on their own right so who else and sometimes that involved oftentimes that involved drawing on very established networks of partnerships and, and relationships and sometimes it involved working with new types of partners sometimes partners that maybe the organization would have thought previously they would never have worked with um because maybe they have different agendas or whatever uh, so there's a huge amount of program planning and and i don't even want to say program because it wasn't really a program it was more like work planning you know um and i think the key point there was that that was iterative right because everything was changing so it was so the you know the idea or the plan that you came up with in march probably wasn't the plan that you had in July 2020, you know, because, and so, you know, a key part of our role was number one, to reassure them that the funding was fine, you know, because some funders did pull out 
oftentimes because they themselves had less money because endowments were here, etc. Um, so number one, we're good, we're here. What else do you need? You know, who you know, how are you doing financially? What else is there? Um, but also just to, you know, because the funding was flexible, just to be able to say, look, okay, look, if you want it, we trust you enough to change your your plans and adapt the needs to community. If you want to talk to us about it to bounce ideas, because we know other partners working in that space, super happy to. But most certainly you don't need to get approval from us to do that. If you just need to get on and do stuff, we will hear from you when you can have a moment to breathe. And otherwise we're here if you need us, but we, we get it. You know, it's you're prioritizing your community and your, and your teams. Uh, so yeah, rapid, so testing assumptions, organizational planning, kind of iterative program design and redesign and redesign again. Um, and then I think now we're starting in some, some of the communities that we work in, definitely not all sadly, to, to, you know, we're starting to see partners thinking about, okay, well, how do we live with, you know, what does this new normal look like? And, you know, unfortunately, definitely some contexts are not out of the emergency kind of aid funding type um, approach. And then I, I think very sadly won't be for quite a while to come, but in some contexts where the pandemic is, um, at least for now, kind of abating there, you know, there's now looking at discussions of, okay, what does it mean for us going forward and, and what's our role? Um, we're definitely, you know, I mean, there's very visceral challenges as well in terms of team exhaustion, you know, burnout, mental stress, because people, I think there's, it can be in a sort of an expectation that if you're running a nonprofit, you're somehow superhuman, you know? <laughs> um, and of course, you know, they, they, I mean, they are, they're total rock stars. But you, you are also a human, you know, and you're taking on a lot and you're also worried about your own family and, you know, a lot of our partners, you know, their own families were affected by job losses or, or COVID itself, you know, so we're, we're definitely seeing more discussions around that and around sort of wellness and mental health than perhaps we were before the pandemic, which, you know, I, I think, I, I hope that that is another trend that sticks, actually. Um, yeah, I, I really want to acknowledge that point just to give some time to honor that and all, all, all that everyone is experiencing, especially working in this um, social sector, because, you know, it's, it's always like a, a battle where you, you are trying to manage something and you have that pressure of, right, oh. if you want to do the impact work, you have to have it all figured out. You have to have the finances all figured out. Right. You have to have the sustainability right. all figured out. It's all on right. you. And people are expecting you to do more as well because they're like, well, if you're passionate, right. then you should give right. all of it. But at the same that's time, it. we are humans dealing with all of yeah. these news that's happening in the world and, and our yeah. emotions. We are you know, mentally also exhausted while dealing with what's happening in the world that yeah. we cannot reach and help, yet also you know, yeah. struggling to maintain the sustainability of what we're doing. And also having maybe, you know, responsibilities towards family or other sort of personal yeah. responsibilities. Yeah. And it's a lot. And right it's now where, yeah. where there are limited resources in the world and things are pretty much sort of on pause, businesses, for-profit businesses are struggling and Absolutely. non-profits are in a sort of even worse position. And, yeah. you know, it's just kind of, I think one thing is just, 
it's it's unfair expectations of the people who are doing the work to tank on more mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. conversations are always that right good job what you're doing you know do better do more and i'm like yeah. no all of you like try and do something in your own ways don't put it all on yeah. the people who are doing the, the work because yeah. it's a lot and yeah. it, it becomes too much with the kind of situation we are in we're not just dealing with the pandemic there's the situation in afghanistan there are all these hit waves and and climate sort of really responding in natural disasters and as much as we're doing the work on the ground sometimes i also feel crap like part of the language but you know like this work should have been done 10 20 years ago like i was i was a kid back then like what what happened you know like i'm doing the work now in whatever capacity i can but i also feel like it's too late and there's just so much to do and yeah. I'm limited by my resources and energy. And, you know, it's, it's easy to fall into pessimism, but the people who are still doing the work on the ground, who are still fighting, who are still, you know, pulling themselves out of bed and doing this work, mm-hmm. like really kudos to all of them and, and just say like, good work, you know, even if you feel like you're not doing Absolutely. enough, you feel like you Absolutely, should do more, yeah. like just rest and make sure you pace yourself out because we are humans after all. Yeah, I, I really hope that that is something that can, that, conversations about that in a kind of in the philanthropic world are happening a little bit more I really didn't see them happening much at all um before COVID so I, I hope that that's something that can shift um but but you know also I mean I I think and I know this from myself as well I think it also it's pervasive within the nonprofit sector right this yeah. idea that you know um I I can't I can't you know I can't take a break I can't you know I, I must I must keep going I've got to you know um I mean we did a really interesting kind of snapshot we'll make it public soon but a really kind of interesting kind of horizons like very quick and dirty kind of snapshot on exactly this issue because one of the things we're really conscious of is burnout right and, and how leaders are doing and how teams are doing and um, but it was really interesting the conversations with with nonprofits. lots well. of perceptions about well you know what will, what a lot of questions about what, what will people think of me if I take yeah. this time off quote unquote time off you know what how will that be perceived partly by funders but actually more it was often about by my peers you know and by my team how will people see that so I think that was really interesting it was a good reminder to me that it's it's most certainly it's pervasive on the on the funder side this idea of like you gotta keep going you gotta do more you know especially now step up step up but I think it's also you know it's it's very much um yeah, within the nonprofit side too, born out of, you know, obviously a fundamental desire to have, you know, to do the most that you can. But it was quite interesting to me to sort of hear a lot of those insights and feedback, you know, on, yeah, yeah, real concerns about if if I do take that, you know, how, how will people, how will people see me, you know, will they see that, will they kind of, the underlying thing was kind of, will people think that I'm copping out, you know, or walking away or, you know, and that not being seen as something that's, you know, that time off is legitimate type thing. Yeah. I think we're not um, great at taking care of ourselves. <laughs> also, just even even if you rush aside what everyone else thinks and like just don't care about that, there is always this inner guilt. Like, you know, so much needs to be done in this world right now. I should be Absolutely. doing more. But then at the same time, if you don't care for yourself, you burn out even faster and you won't Mm. be able to go the long run. So then, you know, finding that balance and to not feel guilty when you have to take that break, 
even though it mm. is kind of sometimes really difficult to just block some time off and not do anything. Mm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It's important. And sometimes, yeah. you know, just giving yourself the permission to switch off from the news. I think that's, yeah, right. that's important as well. Right. Like switch off from social yeah. media and the news when you feel like you're at your threshold emotionally, especially mm. with all the happenings in the world right now. Yeah, not easy, but there are people who are working towards the cause and you're not alone <laughs> and I think kind of just reflecting on my my journey um really quickly sharing this so because I come from the arts place and yeah. and there is just limited funding when you are trying to do arts and social impact and working with communities and it's a very sort of labor intensive time intensive process yeah. and there is limited funding for such work and there is this pressure for people who are in this particular type of art space to find um social entrepreneurship models to make it work financially yourself yes. And right. as much as I, I realized that there was a need for that because the, the fundings are just limited, I kind of also realized it's actually a lot to ask of, um, of people mm -hmm. to have the, mm -hmm. the creative side of, you know, your, yeah, your yeah, left yeah. brain working and your right brain yeah. also working really well. And to, yeah. be, un to understand business, to be analytical, to understand numbers, to, to understand the ecosystem. And, and when it comes to beyond just the community work on the ground work, it's a completely different skill set. You know, it's what you mentioned in the yeah. beginning, understanding where are the... Um, how are these funders being funded? Like, where is the money yeah. coming from? Who, are, who is on yeah. the board? And that's an entire kind of ecosystem of relationships and understanding that is beyond just the community work that, that you're doing on the ground. And I, it took me about one, two years, the past one or two years to understand that I am doing the work on the ground. And for me, looking at it like, you know, this is good work that community benefits. Um, of course, it should be supported. But then actually, no, this is not how the, the, the world works. You have to, you know, if you're looking at funding, if you're looking at from that sort of perspective to get money, then it's looking at the ecosystem, looking at where the money comes from. And, and it's another kind of skill set, another kind of knowledge and another way of like navigating that. And it's a lot to ask for. And also like it if is. you're going to the social entrepreneurship route, like understanding venture capitals or incubation programs, all of that, it's a different kind of skill set, different kind of um, like, you know, mental capacities that, that you have to deal with. And to take on all of that, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of energy yeah. and it takes time. And, yeah. you know, when, when it comes to the real world economy, like... It's, it doesn't give you that sort of time or patience to have you know that space to figure things out. It, it wants things fast because if you want to get the kind of returns, then you have to get it all figured out immediately. But that's almost impossible because it takes time to even you know negotiate your within yourself, understand where is it like what kind of mentality, mindset, framework do I have to adopt? What is the kind of like ways of thinking that I have to restructure myself to be able to understand mm -hmm. all of these different categories? And all mm -hmm. that takes time. And I think over the last few weeks, like with all the current events that's happening, I found myself in a position where I just decided I'm going to take it slow and take a break. And to mm -hmm. whoever is listening out there who feels burnout, like take a time to pause and really think about like, what is it that you you love doing? What is it that you want to do? Where are your skill set at? 
if you don't have all the necessary skill set to do the work that you're doing, who can you pull in to support with the work that you're doing? You know, it could be people who are willing to volunteer, um, people who have retired or, you know, have time on their on their end and want to do something good. Like, how could you increase your social capital and the network of people who are going to do the work with you? And if you cannot find these people, it's okay to take a break. It's okay to, you know, take a break, understand where you're at emotionally, how much you can support and give, and then rethink what is the best way forward strategically for yourself if you see yourself as an organization where are your resources you know be it emotional financial or, or your time and then just figure out where is the best that you can contribute um, that, that would have the kind of impact or outcomes that you want even if you don't achieve 100 of that it's okay just pace yourself out and do little things bit by bit and to sort of like end end this off because we're kind of like running out of time um oh, there is like uh one question that i asked to everyone on the podcast, which is that if there is one thing that someone could do to make a difference in this world, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's a, <laughs> a lot of answers that I could give, but if I talk to kind of the, sort of my work, if you like, um, that actually funding models that prioritize more um power sharing more equity more um humility more conversations more shifting of you know yeah more more partnership would be good and there's lots of different examples of that i mean there's sort of more trust-centered approaches there's participatory funding which i think is a really interesting um model and you know something that we're interested to explore um so i i think that sort of shifting of yeah shifting of the power dynamic and that's going to look different for different funders you know as i say each each funder has to operate within its kind of structure but i think even even within that you know there are ways of being human right you don't you can even if you are never going to be able to give unrestricted funding or flexible funding there are ways of being human <laughs> and kind of being approachable and there are ways of giving feedback and and thinking about what, okay, how can we make our processes as streamlined as possible? So we're asking the minimum of time of people, you know, how can we be very upfront if it's not, a, if it's not got legs and we're not going to fund it, then let's just, let's not leave someone hanging. Let's just tell them straight away. You know, there's even within a very rigid structure, there are ways of, of facilitating that. I would also say that I think there's also a, a structural point there. It's a, it's a really sort of boring point, but there's also a structural point around for a lot of, this is doesn't relevant to Singapore because it has an amazing infrastructure for nonprofits. But in, in other countries like Cambodia, for example, um, Nepal, other countries, you know, that the infrastructure around being able to give philanthropically is much less developed. So that means from a funder's perspective, you know, you can't, it's much, there isn't the same level of, uh, there's a lot of mistrust and there's a lot of research out this CAPS, the Centre for Asian Philanthropy and Society has done a really amazing piece of research ongoing around what they call the trust deficit in, in philanthropy in Asia. Um, and part of that is some of the stuff we've talked about, but part of it is also a sort of structural point around, you know, if you're working in an opaque environment, then as a, as a, a lot of funders understandably have concerns about, well, is this you know, is this organization legit? And that isn't helped when there's every, you know, fairly frequently there's kind of high profile scandals of philanthropic money being used fraudulently, which just makes it, which just ruins it for everybody else, you know? Um, so I, it's a really, it's not the most like sexy groundbreaking answer, but um, I do, 
they, those would be technically that's two things I've said actually, but um, you know, a shift towards approaches that are more human and more trust centered as much as possible. Um, and then a sort of structural shift as well that would help funders to be able to do that, especially funders that are, if they're working in countries that are a little bit more opaque. Singapore isn't, you know, Singapore has everything online. So you can search for an organization's accounts. You can, you know, cause there's legal compliance that all funders have to do, right? Um, and that would be very much easier if, if things were a little bit different um, in terms of the sort of structure around it. Uh, and I think that would, my hope is that that would facilitate, give confidence to funders who maybe right now are saying, oh, you know, oh, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, it's, it's quite risky that that would give them the confidence to say, okay, let's try a slightly different way of, of funding. Let's try looking at kind of more human trust-centered type approaches, which then in turn, it's, that's not really the end goal, right? The end goal is then hopefully that it enables some people like you and organizations out there to, to do the work in communities that needs to be done you know and to do it in a way that doesn't completely burn everybody out one final... that's probably the least sexy answer i could have given actually i, I know that other people on yeah. this podcast have given beautiful huge you know sort of broad sweeping visions and i go in with like oh structural change to philanthropic um, but you know what a lot of the social impact work is not sexy <laughs> no going yeah, down and doing the work i know i'm sexy answer <laughs> One final question and, and your chance at having a, a sexy response. What is one dish with oh, onions no. that you love? Oh, 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 I should have thought of an answer for this. What is a dish with onions that I love? Oh gosh, so many. Um, what is a dish with onions that I love? I, I'm going to get really, oh God, no, I'm letting myself down. I'm going to give an unsexy answer. Um, no pressure. <laughs> I, <laughs> Yeah, I'm so type A. I'm taking this in a really pressurized way. <laughs> yeah, and I put um, onions in most stuff, like I make spaghetti bolognese. It's always got onion in. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I put it in most things, but particularly at the minute around any sort of hybrid dish that I experiment with, nearly always has onions and garlic in. To be fair, so then no one sits next to me. So there we go. <laughs> How about you? What's your favorite dish with onions? Oh wow! No one's actually asked me that before. Oh, really? <laughs> what is this river is asking? I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> At one point, when when someone when I asked it to people, and I was thinking, oh, what if I asked that to myself? Do I have a favorite onion dish? And I'm like, onions are just great when it's fried. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what you do. So with good. It's <laughs> so good. By the way, yeah, yeah. I, I had think... a veggie burger for dinner last night, and that had onions in. Yeah. I guess in its simplest <laughs> form, like fried onions would be my favorite. <laughs> even if you ruin a dish because I'm doing quite a lot of like vegetarian recipe experiments thing to try and like you know figure out my protein and all that and I realized if you screw up a dish just fry onions and put it on top <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my go-to that's a hundred percent that's exactly the same as me like if I and then I just kind of make out that it's meant to be like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, yeah, yeah, this is what I planned. Uh, <laughs> if you have um, enough fried onions, it just tastes good anyway. <laughs> it's fine, right? Like you just kind of caramelize them and it's all good. Yeah. No, it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. So I, I would go with the same as you. Pretty much anything that has fried fried onions in is is good with me. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone, if you're considering a vegetarian meal, fuffles are great. Like go green. 
yeah exactly yeah love love falafels and then um I, yeah i add fried onion but I'm, i apologize to anyone who <laughs> feels that that's not not the way falafel should be done <laughs> um, thank you nikki thank you for being on this oh no episode. this has been such a such a wonderful conversation thanks so much for your time Fia. i really appreciate it thank you no problem these are it's a very valuable work that you're doing Thank you. It's very valuable inside, especially for people who are on the ground applying for all these different funding. Just keep in mind, like, know where these funders um, are being funded, how are they being funded, and whether that aligns with what you're trying to do, and cut and save your time this way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, from our perspective, you know, I'm always happy to be contacted, and I'll just be really honest about people with people about whether it's a, a, you know, a fit or not, but you can always reach out directly. Um, yeah, where, can, where can people reach you so if you just go through our website there's a a way that you can get in touch with me there um yeah and um i mean i you know all of our priorities are on are on the website so our biggest focus at the moment is in uh, metro manila in the philippines um but yeah i mean we're you know we try to be as accessible as possible um and always just to try and be really upfront with people i will also um put the links into the episode description um notes Oh, that would be great. Thanks, VA. That's really great. Thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Peel the layers and be the change. Change making work is tough. Sometimes it feels like all the odds are against you and it's a constant upward battle. Onion's top podcast keeps you going when times are tough and crystallizes learning that you can apply on your impact work. My name is Fia and I'm here to support you. If you're not yet on this journey, give Onion's talk a listen. Be inspired, be touched, be motivated. Follow me on LinkedIn or Instagram at F-E-E-Y-E-H underscore N-E-O for updates, workshops and future events. Onion's Talk was born out of INSEP, International Network for Socially Engaged Practitioners. If you liked this episode and would love to support, subscribe, leave a rating, write a review on iTunes and consider donating. Your gift will allow me to continue supporting changemakers in a more sustainable way. Onion's Talk is on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes and most other podcasting sites. If it's not there, send me an email at heyonionstalk at gmail.com. Special thanks to Andrea for the music. Catch you next episode.